All right, we're in the book of Ruth, and we're looking at the good news according to Ruth. And we titled this series, Learning to Trust God in the Messiness of Life. And I don't know about you, but the good times, I find it easy to trust God. But in the bad times, or the confusing times, or the frustrating times, it is really hard to do so. And a couple weeks ago when we started this series, I made mention of the poem written by William Cooper called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And that's a phrase that has become common in Christian circles as we try to think about what in the world God might be up to, not only in the world, but also in our lives. But it's also a phrase that is used to summarize what we talk about in terms of the providence of God, how God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This poem that was written has since been put to music. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'm going to rehearse, not rehearse, I'm just going to read a couple of these. That freaked you out a little bit, didn't it? You don't want me to rehearse that. I'm just going to read a couple of the stanzas of this poem. And it says this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he, his, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. As we looked at the first chapter of Ruth, we saw what might be described as a frowning providence in the life of one of the main characters, Naomi, and in her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And the reason we're studying this book of Ruth has been put forward by a man named Dean Elvich in his commentary. He said, the lesson for all readers of Ruth is that God is working behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose. Nothing occurs in our life, lives by randomness or chance. I know it sometimes feels that way, but nothing in our lives happens by randomness or chance. And that's going to be pressed for us in the second chapter of Ruth as we look at something that looks like chance, that looks like something just happened randomly. But everything that's gone on in these characters' lives is actually pointing to this very point where a chance happening, as we might say, takes place. David Strain in his commentary on Ruth said this, The book of Ruth aims at the cultivation of a spiritual skill. In other words, Ruth is aiming to develop a certain talent or a skill in us. Taught by the biblical text to be sure, but practiced in the details of our daily lives. Learning to read God's workmanship in the mundane particulars of the story is meant to help us see his fingerprints in your own circumstances also. Learning to read God's workmanship in the mundane particulars of our lives. How do we do that? Well, one of the ways we do that is by learning stories about how God has done that in other people's lives and to be able to see how these things that happen in my life are just the kind of things that God takes and weaves into the tapestry of his grace. And so we're going to call our study today The Fingerprints of God. You think about fingerprints, say, at a crime scene or something that... that Detectives can go in afterwards and find and, and determine who has been there. We're going to take a negative example like that and put it into a positive. In this story, we're going to see the fingerprints of God 
even though he's not um, speaking in this passage, we don't see him acting in miraculous ways, but we're going to see his fingerprints all over it. So just to bring us up to speed, in case you have not been with us in the study of Ruth, or you don't know the story of Ruth, or just like a quick refresher, in chapter 1, the story opens up with a famine going on in the promised land during the time when the judges ruled. The time when the judges ruled was a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so this famine took place, and God had told them ahead of time that when you stray, the weather around you is going to be an indication of what's going on in your own life. So they're experiencing this famine, and they were supposed to turn back in repentance to God. But what Elimelech and his wife Naomi did was they decided to go to a foreign land and to take their kids there and put themselves, as it were, under the blessing and protection of a foreign god. And so while they were there, Elimelech dies, and Naomi finds herself as a widow in this foreign land. But thankfully, she has two sons, and these two sons marry Moabite women. And these two sons, as it has happened to be the case, died as well. So she finds herself destitute in a foreign land. And yet, she hears while working in those fields that God has visited his people, and there's bread once again in Israel. So she determines to go back, and she brings her, her two daughter-in-laws with her. But on the way, she tells them, wait, stop, you guys need to go back. You ladies need to go back. And one of them does go back. But Ruth, Ruth, who this book is named after, says to Naomi, don't tell me to go back. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. May the Lord do to me if I turn back to you, if anything but death separates us. And so they just happen to arrive back into Jerusalem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It just so happens they arrive at this particular moment. And so we pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And here in this very first verse, the author of the book of Ruth just is giving us just a placeholder. He's like, I wanna, I'm going to highlight something here for you. I want you to just to pay attention when this man arrives on the scene. His name is Boaz. And that name Boaz means something roughly like strength. And so it's told in this text as well that he is a, uh, a worthy man. This is translated elsewhere as mighty man. You may have heard of the mighty men of David, the mighty men of valor. And that's the same phrase that's used here. And it might be an indication that Boaz himself had served as a soldier. I'm not really sure about that. But some other translations translate it as a man of noble character. And the NIV translates it as a man of standing, and these are legitimate uh, ways to translate this. But he is a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech, remember, was Naomi's husband who died. And so he's actually going to point this out to us several times throughout this passage. And so, back to the story. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Here the author is reminding us that Ruth is a foreigner, now among the people of Israel. She's a Moabite, and she says to her mother, let me go into the fields and glean. What is this idea of gleaning? Pay attention to that word because it's going to show up ten times in chapter 2. Gleaning was a practice that God had put into the Torah as the instruction manual for his people Israel on how they are to treat others. And so basically, if they had a land that could be harvested, they were to leave margins at the end. 
and not to go over their fields or their vineyards multiple times, plucking everything off, but to leave some for the poor. So if we look in the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, they're instructed with these words. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you are slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. He says, remember, you were once foreigners in another land. You were actually slaves. And remember how desperate those situations were for you. And so now when you set up this new nation, I want you to be kind and generous and overflowing to others. And so I want you to be these kind of people. He says again in, verse, in, in, in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner among you, residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So here God is, is conditioning his people to be kind and generous and to love those who need help, especially foreigners who come into the land. And we've talked about this before at Mercy Hill Church. God's heart is for the vulnerable. You see this kind of quartet of, of, of uh, descriptions all throughout the scripture of the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, and the poor. God's heart is for these kind of people. And so Ruth says to her mother, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Even though God had commanded his people to be generous and kind to the poor, doesn't mean that they will be that. But here Ruth is hoping she finds someone who is like that. And so Naomi says to her, go, my daughter. It kind of makes you wonder why Naomi doesn't go with her, right? And we're not told why she doesn't. It's, it's not hard maybe to wonder that she might be just so broken down with life that she just can't go out. She's, she's already changed her name from Naomi to Bitter because of everything that's happened to her. And maybe just in that bitterness, it's taking effect in her own body, and she doesn't want to go out. And that might be the case, but whatever the case is, Ruth goes out, and Naomi stays back. And so we're told, verse 2, so she set out. So put yourself in, in Ruth's place for a moment. You are a foreigner in a foreign land, and you don't know what God is up to. You're trusting that there might be someone kind out there will allow you to glean the fields, but you're not sure that you're going to find that person. So you're just setting out. You're just, just doing the next thing you know what to do. I've grown to appreciate the wisdom of my wife over the years, and especially as I've watched her counsel our sons over the last few years as they finished up university and moved on to the next phase of their life. And sometimes that was tough, not knowing exactly what that would look like. And my wife would say over and over again, well, just, just do the next thing. If you don't know what to do in terms of the big picture, just do the next thing. And so see Ruth here just doing the next thing. She doesn't know what God is up to in her life. She's trusted in this God, but she doesn't know what he's doing. All she knows is it's a new day, 
and she and her mother-in-law need to find food to eat. So she set out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. It's almost as if the writer here is saying, if you don't remember that Boaz was a part of Naomi's family, extended family, from that verse 1, well, here it is again in verse 2. He is of the clan of Elimelech. So it just happens of all the fields that Ruth could have gone out to, she just so happens to land in the, name, in the field by the, man of, uh, by the name of Boaz. It just so happens. In Hebrew, it literally reads, as happenstance happened, or as chance chance. We, we might put it as luck would have it. Now, why is the author of Ruth, who doesn't believe in luck, and who doesn't believe in chance, who doesn't believe in happenstance, use this kind of language here? <laughs> well, I, I think it's because he's doing it just kind of tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> he's telling this story, and he's just using a common phrase that people might use. She just happened to come to the field of Boaz. This author, as a good Hebrew would know, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. So here is Naomi having made the long trek back from Moab with her mother-in-law, and here in the next morning after arriving, she needs to get up and go find food. And so she just happens to find her steps have been established in such a way that she ends up in the field of Boaz. It's like the author is saying, what are the coincidences of this? And so she's, she's in this field. And what I want you to see, my friends, is everything that has happened in her life so far, the good, the bad, and the ugly, having been born and raised in Moab, having worshipped the gods of Moab, now having married Malon, Ruth, or I'm sorry, Naomi's son, having witnessed his death, the death of her brother-in-law, the death of her father-in-law, now coming back to Israel, to Bethlehem, with her mother-in-law. She just happens to end up in this field. Everything that has happened in her life brings her to this point, where she just happens to land here. Verse 4, Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. The fields outside of Bethlehem here are being harvested, and here Boaz, the owner, comes out, and he greets his people. The Lord be with you. They respond, the Lord bless you. And is this just kind of pious talk? What's going on here? Boaz, as a good Hebrew, knows that work done before God is good work. We've been created to work, we've been created to cultivate, and as he goes out and he sees his employees in this field, he wishes that they would experience the pleasure of God and the presence of God with them as they harvest their field. So he says, the Lord be with you. And they answer back, Lord bless you. In verse 5, Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? As Boaz looks out over his fields, he notices someone new. And so he calls maybe one of his foremen over, one of his reapers, and said, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
You may remember from chapter 1 when they returned back, it just caused a stir within the city of Bethlehem. Everyone was asking, is this Naomi? And they didn't know who this other woman was, <clears throat> but everyone has been talking. <laughs> and so, verse 7, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. This is that woman that everyone has been talking about, the Moabitess. And so Boaz goes to her and says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. This is very interesting. Ruth is very conscious of being an outsider, of being a foreigner here in this new nation where she doesn't know anyone. And Boaz, knowing that she's a foreigner, comes to her. It doesn't just say, young lady, but he says, my daughter. What's he doing? He's closing the distance that she might have felt. Instead of being an outsider, he's saying to her, you're, you're now an insider. My daughter, don't go to any other field but keep close to my young women. Who are the young women? Well, you had the men who would go and they would be cutting down the harvest and the young women would follow behind and gather those up into sheaves and to bind them. So he's saying, I want you to stick close to them. Verse 9, Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. <laughs> it was very common in that culture for the women to draw water. But he says here, I want you to go when you're thirsty and drink the water that young men have drawn. In other words, we're going to serve you. But he also says, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? I love this about Boaz. She knows that she, he knows, I'm sorry, he knows that she is vulnerable, being a foreigner, working out in the fields. Sometimes bad things happen in those situations. And so he tells her, you don't have to worry about your safety. I've already taken care of that. No one is going to touch you. And someone said in the commentaries I was reading this week, Boaz introduces the first non-harassment policy at work that's found in the scriptures, and I like that. Tony Moretta, in his commentary, said this, May the Lord raise up a new generation of men like Boaz who protect and provide for and do not prey on others. I know the women in this room in their hearts just said, Amen. And the mighty men among us in their hearts just said amen as well. Verse 10, she responds. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? <laughs> she was hoping that she would go out and find a field where someone would have favor upon her. And she found that. And she's overwhelmed at his kindness and his generosity. And why would you take note of me? I am a foreigner. Verse 11, Boaz answered, All that you have done here for your mother-in-law, since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land, and have come to be, I'm sorry, has come to a people that you did not know before. He knows about this young lady. Everything that she's done in terms of, of leaving all that she knew and going to a foreign land, to help take care of her destitute mother-in-law. It's been told to him. Just a sneak peek into chapter 3. Boaz says, All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. It's interesting. Remember chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that if 
that Boaz was what? A worthy man. And here, there is a worthy woman. Back to chapter 2, verse 12. He says, um, the Lord, Lord, repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What is Boaz doing here? <laughs> He's invoking a blessing upon this young Moabitess. He knows that she has left her gods and has come and taken refuge under the Lord. Remember the capitalized letters of L-O-R-D in this translation is meant to be an indication to us of the covenant name of God, the name by which he revealed himself to Moses when he rescued people from slavery in Egypt. This Lord is the one that Boaz is invoking, the same Lord that he wanted his workers to sense his presence, the same Lord that his workers wanted to bless Boaz. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What an interesting phrase there. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This idea of, of God like, a, like an eagle protecting his people with its wings is something that goes back to the Exodus story where God rescued his people and he brought them under his care. That's what's going on here. The book of Deuteronomy says this, He, the Lord, that is, shielded him, that is, Israel, and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. Jesus himself, when he was at Jerusalem, and he was looking over the city and weeping for it, said, I have longed to gather you as a mother hen would gather her chicks under her, but you have refused. You did not want that. But in Ruth's case, she has come. She has wanted that. She has wanted to be taken care of by the God of Israel. One commentator, David Hutchison, said this, Though Ruth understands herself to be a foreigner, Boaz welcomes her as a member of the family of Yahweh, under whose wings she has come for refuge. So put yourself in Ruth's position. You have gone through so much, and you're just trusting in the Lord to provide for you. And she, here she finds herself just happening to come to the field of Boaz, and Boaz has all these kind things to say to her. He's taking care of her. He's protecting her. He's providing for her. What relief this must have been, right? What relief this must have been for Ruth to be greeted by the kindness and generosity of Boaz, whom she just met. After all she has been through to now experience this comfort and reassurance, that must have been amazing. She says in verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. She does express the comfort that this man has provided, this Mighty man, this, this worthy man. And then, as the day goes on, we're told in verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and sit, I'm sorry, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. My brain was starting to get ahead of what I was reading there. Normally, a foreigner would just sit at the fringes if she were to stop working at all. But here, Boaz says, I want you to come sit with us. And take some of this bread we have and dip it in the wine. Wine, as you know from the scriptures, is oftentimes a symbol of blessing and rejoicing. So she sat beside the reapers. 
as Boaz sat there with them. And he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. Notice this man, Boaz, this, this character. Notice his character. He's the owner of the land. He's the one who should be served by others. And just like Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took up water to wash his disciples' feet to show them what a servant's heart is. Here, Boaz takes food and serves Ruth. Verse 15, she rose to glean. Now, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So as, as the day resumes and they go back to work, he's saying to his workers, leave some of the sheaves behind for her. Don't go and load those up. Let her have those already bound up so she doesn't have to, to do more work and, and just keep pulling stuff out. Just let her have an abundance. What's going on here? Some people who kind of know where the story is going says what Boaz is doing here is flirting with her that he's kind of buttering her up, so to speak. And I don't think that's what's going on at all. Boaz has just met this foreigner. He's a man of worth, of value, a mighty man. He's not in the market to marry a foreigner. He's not flirting with her. He's, what, what you're seeing going on here is his character being put on display. What the scriptures call hesed. This is an important word for us to know. I don't mean to to bore you with a Hebrew phrase here, but this is an important phrase. This word hesed means kindness, mercy, goodness, faithfulness, loyalty. It, it's, a, it's a word that so many English words strive to, to contain, to define. This word hesed is used some 250 times in the Old Testament, and it usually refers to God's loving kindness, his generosity, his care. In fact, when God revealed himself more fully to Moses. He described himself as a God who is abounding in hesed, or abounding in steadfast love. Boaz has himself experienced this hesed from God, and it's changed him, and it's transformed him, and it just spills out in hesed to others. Remember that verse from the book of Micah, where it says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice. To love Hesed and to walk humbly with your God. You might have memorized this verse in, in your translation. It might have said to love mercy or to love kindness. It's that word Hebrew and, and Hebrew Hesed. And that's exactly what Boaz loves. He loves being kind, he loves being generous. And he sees a Moabitess woman who is very vulnerable and he takes steps to make sure she's experiencing Hesed. What an amazing guy. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until the evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Different commentators estimate this to be somewhere between 30 and 50 pounds. And she took it and went into the city. <laughs> I want you to just imagine these blessings that have broken out upon Ruth in this moment. I mean, she is literally straining under 30 to 50 pounds of blessing that has come to her 
in the providence of God through the hand of Boaz. And so she hauls that back into the city of Bethlehem to the house of her mother-in-law. And it says that her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Remember the leftover she had when Boaz said, take this bread, dip it in the wine? She put it in a little box and just brought it home and gave it to her mother-in-law. And just, I want you to take a moment and just notice the kindness of Ruth here. Notice Hesed working out in her life. Because her mom-in-law, remember, is a bitter woman at this moment. She hasn't given up believing in God. She just doesn't think he's good. And she comes back to this house, having found favor in the eyes of this man, Boaz, <laughs> tremoring <laughs> with this, this weight of blessing in her arms. And she lays it down there, shows it to her mother-in-law, and brings out the leftovers that she had from lunch. Tony Merida, and again, just kind of highlighted this for me, and I want to highlight this for you. Before looking at that conversation that is between Ruth and Naomi that follows, we should stop and consider Ruth's ongoing kindness to her mother-in-law. She is still with her and still serving her. Ruth shows the same kindness to Naomi that Boaz has shown to her. I find Ruth's example challenging. Do you find it hard to love bitter people? Is it, a challenge, uh, is it challenging to serve difficult people? If so, then allow Ruth to instruct and inspire you. Love the Naomi's in your life in the way that Christ has shown love to you. That was encouraging. I just wanted to bring that before you. Let's go back to the story now. Verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Naomi can't believe her eyes and what's happening here. And whatever's happened is beginning to thaw her heart. She says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. Ruth went out hoping to find someone who would show favor and kindness. And now, seeing that she found that, here she's invoking blessings upon this man. She's, she's leaning back into her faith. So, she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I have worked today is Boaz. Boaz. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by Yahweh whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Notice, notice this change in, in Naomi. Remember, she's been bitter. She's been angry with God at the turn of events in her life. She has felt like God has been her adversary. And now, she says, may Boaz be blessed by the Lord. And then she says, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Is she speaking about Boaz here? No, she's speaking about God. Yahweh, that's the antecedent, both here in my English translation and in Hebrew. May Boaz be blessed by God, the God whose kindness, whose, guess what Hebrew word this is? Hesed. Whose hesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now she sees, instead of God being against her, that God has indeed been working for her, bringing her back here to this land through all that she's gone through, all the heartache and frustration. She realizes, after all, God has not forsaken her. Dean Ulrich in his commentary said, God's grace has a human face, 
Boaz was more than a kind of general philanthropist. His actions must be understood in view of covenantal grace. Because God had dealt graciously with him, he treated others similarly. Even so, Naomi properly recognized that Yahweh was the ultimate agent of blessing and that Boaz was the instrument. God had used faithful Boaz and Ruth to restore faithless Naomi to faith. What an amazing thing. Verse 20, Naomi said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. I don't know if she forgot about him before, having spent at least 10, maybe 15 years away in the land of Moaz, coming back now to her people. But she realizes when Ruth says this man was Boaz, that this man is, is one of our relatives. And he's actually one of our redeemers. And we're going to look more at this next week when this idea of redeemer comes to the forefront in the story. But for now, just note that in that, in that context, in that culture, one of the redeemers of a family was a relative who would step in and help take care of people. Usually it was the case, like, if you, had, if you had sold yourself into servitude to pay off a debt, one of your family members, a redeemer, could come buy you out of that. Or in a case, um, there's this, this interesting law that if a man had died before he and his wife had conceived, then the next brother in line would then marry this woman to ensure that the family line could continue. That was one of the redeemers. But, but here, uh, Naomi and Ruth aren't in servitude to anyone. Um, Elimelech is a close relative, but he's not a brother. But anyway, that's just a placeholder there for us to, to recognize. And we'll look more at that next week. And then verse 21. Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. In other words, you can keep coming back. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. And then verse 23. So she kept close to the young woman named uh, Boaz. Um, let me read that again. Sorry, my brain is just going faster than my lips can do right now. So let me just throw that back a little bit. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Just like chapter 1 ended on a high note, saying that Ruth and Naomi made their way back to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. And the barley harvest was a time in which Israel celebrated the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of Booths, in which they, they celebrated their history's journey from slavery in Egypt back to Israel, and they camped out in tents. Just like that chapter ended on a high note, here this chapter ends on a high note. She kept close to the young women of Boaz, cleaning, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. What's significant about that? Seven weeks have now passed since the beginning of the barley harvest, and now it's time to celebrate the festival of the first fruits. When the harvest is done, now comes the festival of the first fruits. What is the first fruits? It's a celebration banking on more to come. And so, here the author of the book of Ruth just leaves us with this thought that there's more to come. And so, Let's leave that right there and ask just a few questions about how we can apply this story to our lives. And the first point of application I want to bring to us is this. Let's reflect on how Boaz points us to the one who is greater than Boaz. Jesus has taught us to read the entire Hebrew scriptures in light of him. 
You see him going around saying things like, someone greater than Solomon is here. Someone greater than the temple is here. And as we look and marvel at this man, Boaz, and his character, it is right for us to see him pointing to one who's even greater than Boaz, Jesus himself. Jesus is the ultimate face of God's grace. Just like Boaz was the face of God's grace to Naomi and Ruth, Jesus has become for all of us the ultimate face of God's grace. And you see him in particular showing his heart for those who are vulnerable. We're told in the Gospel of Luke these words, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The people that the religious leaders had no time for, Jesus made time for. Jesus was the one who drew near to the outcasts, the, the misfits, the ones that society had written off. Everywhere you see him being drawn to the broken and to the hurting, to the foreigner, to the widow, to the orphan. You would see him going into leper colonies and healing. You would see him bringing people back from the dead. You would see him being kind to women and elevating them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man, Jesus, this worthy man, this mighty man, this man blessed by God, nevertheless was considered cursed when he allowed himself to be handed over and betrayed. And on the cross, to serve us in the most ultimate way we needed to be served, not with barley or with bread, but, but in salvation. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. And this man, who was the very definition of the Lord be with you, now finds himself separated from God. On the cross, he quotes Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This man, who did everything right, who lived the most beautiful life, a life that would have made Boaz envious, now is separated from fellowship with God as our sins are placed upon him. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, who was a one-time persecutor of the church, had his heart melted and thawed by the hesed of God. Thinking of Jesus, he said, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. <laughs> when we look at the cross of Christ, which we're just saying about, hallelujah for the cross, we think about how the Son of God loved me, how he showed hesed for us and gave himself for us. And so, let's see in Boaz a direction to Jesus. As great as Boaz was, he points us to one who is greater than Boaz. Here's a second point of application, which I think we would be wise to learn from this chapter. Let's continually ask how we can be tangible, the, the tangible expression of God's hesed in the lives of others. Let's not just leave here being admiring of, of Boaz, but not long to be more like him. And so here's the question. How well do we welcome outsiders like Boaz welcomed Ruth? If he's highlighted in Scripture for us as a man who displayed this hesed, this kindness, this mercy to others, then we need to ask the question, not just how he points us to Jesus, but, but what does he show us about ourselves? How do we welcome the outsider, whether they're the foreigner or a widow or an orphan? or the poor. God has shown us what he desires. 
that we would pursue justice, love Hesed, and walk humbly with him. Or as Jesus described in terms of the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. James, the brother of Jesus, in his book, which we're going to study in the fall, just a heads up on, said that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You want to know what a truly spiritual person looks like? One in whose sight God sees and says, this is an expression of what I'm looking for? It's a person who's full of hesed, the kind that visits orphans and widows in their affliction. The Apostle John put it like this, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, Boaz could have seen Ruth in this situation and closed his heart to her. Just because the law of God said you need to be kind and generous doesn't mean that he was going to be kind and generous, but but he experienced that from God, and so it just made its way out into the lives of other people. And here the Apostle John is, is just hunting down that same track. If you have goods and you can give to those in need, do it. Let's not just talk about being loving and kind, wanting to be like Boaz, wanting to be like Jesus. Let's do it. Leslie Newbigin, the famed missionary to India, put it like this. It is a terrible misunderstanding of the gospel to think that it offers us salvation while relieving us of the responsibility for the life of the world, for the sin and sorrow and pain with which our human life and what our fellow human men and women are so deeply interwoven. God's hesed in our life is meant to spill out in hesed in the life of this world. St. Keller Ferguson put it like this. He says, The real evidence of character and the ultimate test of spiritual maturity it's not how someone reacts to the great, the famous, the rich, and the noble, but how that person has responded to the marginalized, the unnoticed, the poor, the struggler, and the needy. Not who you know, but the needy for whom you care. This is the real measure of men and women. It is certainly the real measure of those who serve Christ. One final point of application. Let's learn to trace the divine fingerprints in our own lives. The story of Ruth is meant to help us understand how God weaves our lives together and just these, these events that just so happen fit into his bigger purposes in our life. I mentioned William Cooper earlier. Let me finish off his poem. He writes, His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have the bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Blind unbelief is sure to err and, and search or scan his work in vain. In other words, it takes faith and trust in God to be able to detect his fingerprints in our lives. How he works the good, the bad, and the ugly together for our good and for his purposes. Again, St. Clair Ferguson put it like this. In the midst of our confusion and happenstances and surprises of life, there is a sovereign God in heaven whose hand is upon us every moment of the day, a God who reigns over every inch of the universe in which we live. So we know that nothing just happens. 
Not even a sparrow falls to the ground without his knowledge, interest, and rule. All things come to pass under the sovereign wisdom and purpose of our Heavenly Father, working together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. My friends, we have as an exclamation point on the fact that God does this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in an empty tomb. God took what was arguably one of the most unjust and inhumane things that has happened to a human being and brought the greatest good out of it, the salvation of the world. And if he does that, then we can trust him with all these other things we don't understand. John Piper put it like this. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. I like that. Let me modify that. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, even if you can't see him doing anything. His fingerprints are there. He is present. He is working. And he is always at work. And so, my friends, let's learn to trust that. And so, we conclude here. Let me leave you with this blessing. May you be anchored in Jesus, the greater than Boaz, tracing the providential fingerprints of God in your life as he works all things together for your good and his glory.